All right, we are going to be doing another open study tonight. And if you're interested in finding this later on Sermon Audio, this will be open study number 77. And I've got three excellent questions here. I may only be able to cover two of them, uh, but I'm, I'm prepared to try to answer all three if time allows. So let's just jump right in. The first one is, uh, I want to start in Exodus chapter 20. Why don't you head over there? And these first two questions are, are related. They're connected. There's at least some overlap in the principles um, that are connected to the answering of these two questions. But we'll take them one at a time. This, uh, this question has to do with two passages in Exodus and actually another one in Numbers. And, and uh, the person didn't mention it, but there's a fourth passage similar to it in uh, Deuteronomy. And it's a principle that the Lord uh, communicated and revealed to his people as part of, in this first mention, this is the first time it's mentioned in Scripture, in Exodus 20, what we have is the, uh, the declaration of the Lord, the revelation of the Lord of the Ten Commandments. And of course, we did, a couple of years ago, we did a, uh, a study through the Ten Commandments here in our Thursday night studies. And I did, I did touch on this, this question, but I didn't go into it in, in much detail. So this will allow me the opportunity to, um, to dig a little deeper into it. Uh, the question is from Exodus 20. Let me read the two passages first, and then I'll read the question. Exodus 20, and we're jumping right into the Ten Commandments, and this one is connected to um, the second of the Ten Commandments. And we're reading in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, and uh, them here is idols that... Um, the Lord's people could make if their hearts were to veer away from faithfulness to the Lord and return to worshiping false gods and then making idols as physical representations of those false gods. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting, and it's this, this phrase, uh, starting with the word visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, the parallel passage that I'll read along with it is from also Exodus chapter 34. The scene is a little bit different here. The first passage was uh, the Lord speaking to Moses on the mountaintop of Sinai in the Shekinah glory cloud. This is also an encounter between Moses and the Lord on Mount Sinai, but this is a later, uh, a later encounter. And uh, the Lord again is speaking to Moses and he's speaking to him now about himself. And we'll read verse six. The Lord passed before him, that's passed before Moses, and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth 
generation. All right, so the question that was asked from these two passages is, the Lord speaks of visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. What does this mean? So let me rephrase the question in terms of what I think they're asking, uh, the person that had asked this question. And that, that would be, and this is really the, the controversial uh, element in these two passages in terms of interpretation does this mean, do these passages we just read, mean that God will punish innocent children for their parents' sin? Um, you know that there is no parent in all of human history, even the parents of the Lord Jesus, there's no parent in human history that's perfect. There's no parent that you know, has only ever walked in righteousness. Uh, all parents fall short. But some parents fall more uh, seriously short of the Lord's standards than others, and some commit, uh, at times, even exceptionally serious sins. And whenever an individual, and, and this is particularly targeting the covenant people of the Lord, whenever a person that belongs to the Lord, who is in the role of parent, commits a particularly serious sin, there, are, there, there is a response from the Lord in that person's life. The question is, what, what, what would happen in a scenario where the parent is committing serious sin and the child doesn't? The child is just living life the way they should. Not, not perfectly, of course, not, not perfectly righteously, but they are certainly not committing the serious sin that the parents are committing. Um, like, I'll just give you a scenario. A parent is, is uh, robbing a bank and the, the child doesn't participate in it, doesn't know about it, doesn't, doesn't agree with it. And if they found out about it and discovered that their parent was doing that, they, they wouldn't support it and they, they, wouldn't, uh, you know, they wouldn't just quietly let it happen. So in that sense, the child is in a, in a position or a condition of relative spiritual innocence, innocent in regard to the, the uh, sin that the parent is committing. Does this passage, when the Lord says he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, does that mean that the Lord is going to not just punish the parent for their sin, but he's also going to punish their children and even beyond that, their children's children, and then beyond that, their children's children's children because of the sin of that first generation that was committing it? Um, the answer to that is pretty direct and straightforward, and we don't need to equivocate in terms of how we would respond to it. The answer is no. God never has, God currently does not, and God never will punish the innocent for other people's sins, even their parents' sins. So we know with certainty that that's a, a clear and um, more than a single time declared principle throughout uh, God's word. And I'll take you to a couple of passages that, that make sure that we don't misunderstand this principle. One is first in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And what we're going to do as I'm trying to answer this question is I'm going to, I'm going to address three principles that apply 
to this, these two passages that we're considering. And this is the first of them. And the first principle is this. Every individual in life bears their own responsibility and their own accountability to the Lord for the sins that they commit. So let's read first Deuteronomy chapter 24. And we'll read just a single verse, verse 16. And this is just as much the law of God as the portion we read in Exodus 20. The only distinction between the portion we read in Exodus 20 and this one in Deuteronomy is Exodus 20 is, yes, the law of God, but it's, a, it's an even among the other laws of God. It's a special expression of God's law that we call the Ten Commandments, which you've heard me teach before. You might remember the Ten Commandments function as a kind of summary of all of God's law. So God understands that he was, he was revealing many of his righteous law standards to his people all at once. Do you remember the, the number of the total number of God's laws, if you were to add them up from Genesis to, to Deuteronomy? 613 individual laws. And we've talked before about how challenging, how difficult that would be to remember all 613, to, to actually have clear remembrance and understanding of, of those things. Like if, um, Bob, if, if your wife gave you a, a honeydew list, and let's just say there were lots of things to accomplish on that list, maybe, maybe as many as 17 things. If she just read it to you once, could you successfully remember those 17 things and make sure that not a single one of them would be dropped from the list in terms of accomplishing the things that she really needs you to get done? Most likely, in all of Bob's best intentions, because I know whenever he gets a list like that from Jeanette, he is like right on top of taking care of the things that are on that list. But most likely, with best of intentions, there might be one or even two things that would drop off of the list just because it's hard to remember. Now, can you imagine if she gave you a list of 613 honeydews? <laughs> it, would be, it, would be, it would be almost impossible to remember. But what the Lord does, knowing that it was necessary to reveal all 613 things, but at the same time, he understands our limitation. He also gave us 10 commandments to summarize the 613. And every single one of the 603 outside of the Ten Commandments is directly related to or connected to one of the ten. So in that sense, this passage that we're reading in Deuteronomy 24 is as important as the one that we read in Exodus 20. So let's read. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 24:16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now that last line doesn't mean that everybody is going to be put to death in the nation of Israel. What it means is, in the the clear context that we're meant to, to keep in mind and understand is, anyone that deserves a death penalty level punishment for their violations of God's law Uh, They will experience that punishment on their own. They will experience that punishment for their own sake, for their own violations. But the children will not be responsible for the parents' violations, and the parents will not be responsible for the children's violations. So 
in that sense, we're not meant to read Exodus 20, verse 5, or Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the portions I read at the beginning, apart from understanding how that's related to and connected to Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Now, let me read one other portion, and this is a little bit longer explanation. I'm going to read fairly quickly through it because it is longer, but it's a, it's a wonderful and the most detailed explanation of this principle found anywhere in Scripture. And this is in the prophet Ezekiel. And we're in chapter 18. So I'm going to read all 20 verses at the beginning of this chapter. And it's all directed to this principle of the Lord will hold each individual soul responsible and accountable for their own sins and not for the sins of anyone else. So Ezekiel 18, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean, this is the Lord speaking to Israel, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. There was a common saying in Israel that they were using to, to convey a concept that if the fathers were engaged in spiritual bitterness, the children would have exceptionally bitter lives because of the father's bitterness and it was the Lord that was going to ensure that that happened. But the Lord is actually confronting this saying and he says this, verse 3, As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains, here it's eating in celebration of idols. If he does not eat upon the, on the, upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge. Here the Lord is just giving a, a brief list of samples, examples of different ways that you can violate his law standards. And he's saying if, if a man does not violate these standards, and then he's about to say how he will respond to that. Verse 7, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend an interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. His the Lord's evaluation and conclusion. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. In other words, the Lord will not target such a person with his judgment. Verse 10, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things. This is not the point of the passage, and it's not the point of me answering, but this is a side note. The man in view here is a very righteous individual. And yet here, the Lord anticipates at least the possibility that that righteous man could father a shudder of blood, meaning his son doesn't turn out as righteous as he himself is. 
Though he, verse 11, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends an interest, takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. The Lord continues to work out the implications of this principle for Israel's sake through Ezekiel. Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So the fundamental principle of how the Lord holds individuals accountable and makes them responsible for their own actions is that each individual is responsible ultimately for what they do in response to God's righteous and revealed standards. Not um, being held responsible for someone else in the family structure. So, to answer the question definitively, um, does this mean that God will punish innocent children for their parents' sin? And the answer is absolutely not, never has, doesn't presently, and never will. So if that's the case, and it is the case, because if God were to punish the innocent children for the father's sin, he would be violating his own law standards that are clearly revealed. And so in that circumstance, what we have here is um, a bit of an interpretive challenge. So let's go back to Exodus 20. If it doesn't mean that God will punish the children for the father's sins, what does it mean and what is it talking about? Let's reread our key verse, which is verse 5 again of Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. All right, so here's the way I'm going to answer it. And I wish I could be more super definitive and clear than I'm going to be, but I'm going to be clear enough to give you at least options for understanding. There's two possible ways of understanding what the Lord is communicating here in Exodus 20, verse 5, and in the other portions where he addresses the same principle. I think both of these principles that I'm going to describe to answer the the question are viable interpretations and biblical in their content, meaning 
neither of these two options, it's, it's, it's not an easy choice because it's not like, well, one is clearly biblical and one is clearly not biblical, so we need to choose the biblical option. Both of these fit within the context of God's ways and God's standards, and both could be what the Lord is communicating here. The problem is, in terms of the wording of the text, both of these are allowable, and so uh, it's difficult for the interpreter to be um, dogmatically certain about which of the two. Now, there's nothing wrong with you out of these two options picking one of the two and saying, well, that one seems more reasonable to me. That one seems to, to uh, be more sensible to me. And so I'm going to choose that understanding. That's fine as long as you understand there is another possible understanding of this or interpretation of this. All right, so one principle is this. It could be emphasizing the commitment of the Lord to a consistent expression of his judgment through each successive generation of Israel's history. In other words, does the Lord judge differently in different generations? Does he apply his standards differently to different generations? There's a reason why that would at least be a question in the mind of Israel later in their history. Um, For instance, um, the first generation of Israel, and I'm talking about Israel as an accumulated nation now, Israel in the generation of the Exodus. The Lord rescued Israel out of Egypt. He brought them across the Red Sea. He brought them into the wilderness. And then what eventually happened to that first generation of people that came out of Egypt and made that long journey, ended up being a 40-year journey in the wilderness. What eventually happened to that generation? They all died, and they all died. Of course they died, but the problem of their, their death circumstances is they all died in the wilderness with only two exceptions. The two exceptions were Joshua and Caleb, two exceptionally righteous people in that first generation of Israel. And the reason they died in the wilderness wasn't simply, well, it was a long journey. It was 40 years long. It was a hard journey, uh, difficult circumstance, difficult conditions. Of course, anybody's going to be worn down. Um, that's not the case because Caleb, who was one of the older men in Israel, by the time they reached the, the boundary of the promised land, he had not only survived the wilderness journey, but at 80 years old, he was, as it's described in scripture, as vigorous as the younger men in Israel. And he went ahead and led his particular uh, family grouping, uh, his particular tribal group in a conquest of the portion of the promised land, led them literally in battle at 80 years old. Um, So it's not just an issue of they died in the wilderness because it was just hard. Uh, It was hard for Caleb, it was hard for Joshua, and they certainly survived, and they survived in a sense with what we would call flying colors. But later in the book of Hebrews, as the Lord describes that generation, he says that he despised the Lord, despised that generation. And he did so because they had a deeply rooted hardness of heart, a rebellion toward the Lord, and a, a commitment Uh, amazingly, to unbelief, a commitment to not trust the Lord in the midst of their circumstances. So much so that throughout, if if you're familiar with the story at all, and I know most of you are, throughout that 40-year journey, what were they doing consistently almost every day of the journey? 
complaining, moaning, groaning, murmuring, um, stirring up trouble in the camp, um, having issues with Moses, having issues with Aaron, but ultimately, and more than anything else, having issues with the Lord who kept leading them around in circles in the wilderness. And why was he leading them around in circles in the wilderness? Because they were moaning and groaning and having issues with the Lord. And so um, we, as Israelites, we might have the, the tendency as we look back on that story and think, well, the Lord just had it in for that one generation. He despised that generation, but he doesn't feel that way toward others. And we might be tempted to think that the Lord has an inconsistent standard of applying his judgment principles. But the Lord wants his people to know he's very consistent in his standards. He doesn't, he doesn't favor one generation over another. Neither does he apply a harder or stricter standard to one generation over another. So what would this have to do with this particular circumstance? So the scenario is a parent is a bad parent in the sense that they're committing some level of serious sin. And the question is, do parents influence their children? Yeah. Is there, are there any exceptions to that principle? The answer is no. Parents influence their children. They're designed by the Lord. That relationship, that parental child relationship is designed by the Lord and intended by the Lord to be a, a relationship of influence. That doesn't mean that whatever the child does is entirely the fault of the parent. It doesn't mean that necessarily at all. So here, one of the the real possibilities of what the Lord is communicating is that bad parental influence is no valid exemption for bad behavior on the part of the children. Meaning that the Lord judged the parent for their sin, and he is saying in Exodus 20 verse 5 that he will likewise judge their children and their children's children and their children's children's children if those successive generations follow in the footsteps of their bad parents. Meaning if they mimic the behavior of bad parents who committed sins worthy of judgment, the Lord will treat the children as severely but as righteously in his judgment as he treated their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents. And why this is super important in every generation, but more so in our generation, I think, than any other that's preceded us, is there's kind of a perspective in our society that's formed, and it's a perspective of what I can only describe as a, a, um, a perspective of victimhood. And that is, People live life and bad things happen to them that influence them in a bad way. And when that happens to them, those that are influenced by bad experiences are perceived largely by our society today as victims of their upbringing, victims of the, the, the less than ideal circumstances of their early life. Maybe their family didn't have enough money, so they're victims of a poverty cycle. Or maybe the, the father was too harsh, 
or maybe going beyond being too harsh. Maybe the father was not just emotionally abusive, but maybe the father was even crossing the line into physical abuse. And then in a circumstance like that, the child who's been influenced by that bad parental behavior goes out and acts in law-breaking ways, not just the laws of society, but the laws of the Lord, on their own. They sin in similar ways. And of course, this is an observable pattern in family progression. It's not true of every family, and it's not true of every individual, but it is a common and observable pattern. And that is like using the idea of physical abuse. Um, People who themselves have been physically abused have a higher ratio of likelihood of becoming physical abusers to their own children than people who have never been physically abused. Do you understand that that's an observable pattern? But does that mean that if you yourself have been physically abused, you are doomed to repeat the sins of your parents and there is no escaping it? There's no way you can avoid repeating the sins of your parents. Or for instance, let's say your parents drank too much alcohol, uh, which was the case with my parents. My parents, you know, alcohol was a much more commonplace part of life. And uh, even uh, drinking to excess, drinking to the point of drunkenness was considered to be acceptable in social circles as I was growing up. And I observed my parents drinking to a, a, a more a greater extent than was healthy and certainly was unwise. Did that doom me to a life of drinking according to the same pattern as what I observed in my parents? And the answer is I'm proof positive that it, it did not doom me to that. Could it have had an influence on me? Absolutely. But the question is, does the bad parental behavior... Um, does it so strongly influence the child that the child is now a victim and therefore, and this is the conclusion that our society is tending to draw, therefore should not be held responsible for their behavior and their actions. Because I'm a victim, um, you know, I have psychological reasons uh, why, I have behavioral uh, reasons why in my past, why I act like this. You shouldn't hold me accountable for my actions because It's not my fault that I do the bad and evil things that I actually do. The Lord wants his people to understand each individual through each successive generation will be held accountable to the exact same standard of the Lord without any any, uh, fudging of the standard because of some difficult set of circumstances in their background or in their past. All right, so that's one possibility, that the passage is talking about the Lord's consistency in implying the exact same standard of judgment. The Lord holds you accountable to a certain level. He will hold your children accountable to the same level. He will hold your children's children accountable to the same level. And each generation will be held accountable according to their own decisions, their own behaviors, their own actions. All right, the other possibility is that in Exodus 20, verse 5, what the Lord is emphasizing is a different principle, and that's the principle of what I want to... I want to, 
I, I came up with this phrase, you know, maybe someone's used it before, I don't know, I don't remember hearing it before, but it's the principle of what I'm going to call generational consequences. Generational consequences, meaning that Exodus 20 verse 5 may be intended to emphasize the long-range consequences of parental sins. Doesn't mean that whatever the parent does wrong dooms the child to follow in their footsteps, but it may be emphasizing the principle of how when we commit sins in a position of responsibility and authority and influence, that we have an effect on those that we are intended to guide through life in the right direction, whether we're in the role of a parent to a child, a pastor to a church, a government official to the, to the society that they are uh, intended to lead. Now, in this circumstance, um, the idea is that the actions of a single parent can have long-range ramifications in the experience of their family. I thought of an example from my own family. This isn't a, like a terrible thing. It's just an interesting thing. And I, I think it does, though, convey uh, the concept. And that is, uh, one of my grandfathers, years ago, uh, had purchased a plot of land in the San Fernando Valley. He had saved up money. He'd worked hard. He, he worked in the film industry uh, behind the scenes. Uh, he was a, a dance uh, instructor for the dancers in the old, um, the old musicals where you see you know, dozens of dancers on screen. So he was a, a, an instructor. And so he saved his money and he bought this plot of land. He bought 40 acres of land right in the heart of the San Fernando Valley. And um, he held it for about three years or so. And then he had an opportunity that came his way to start his own business. And he saw the opportunity to get out of the film industry where he was working long and hard hours and to start his own business. And he was hoping that that would be super successful and he'd have a more pleasant lifestyle as a result of owning his own business. So what he did was he sold his 40 acres of San Fernando Valley real estate. He started his business and his business proceeded to nosedive and he lost all of his money. Now, what I did today, just out of curiosity, and this may not, this this example I'm going to give you may be a a much, you know, because real estate is all about location, right? So maybe his property wasn't in the same prime location as the one I'm going to describe to you. But they're selling right now uh, uh, in, uh, uh, right off of Balboa, they're selling a plot of land of 44 acres, which is a little bit larger than my grandfather's plot of land, four acres larger. Uh, my grandfather, by the way, bought that property. Each acre was $7,000 an acre, which in those days was a lot of money. Um, they're selling this 44-acre plot of land right now for $250 million. So the, the idea is my grandfather made a decision. He made a decision to sell property that, that belonged to him and because it belonged to him would have belonged to his son after him and would have belonged ultimately to his grandson after him, me being in the grandson role. And let's say it wasn't $250 million. Let's say it was only worth half of that. 
So now we're talking about $125 million. Um, he made a decision. Did that decision have ramifications for the future of his family? It certainly did. Now, obviously the Lord didn't want me to inherit $125 million or, or $250 million. Had, he, had the Lord wanted me to inherit that large of a sum, he would have just put it in the heart of my grandfather, just don't sell this, just hold on to it forever. And that, would, that land would have eventually traveled into my hands. Um, so I'm fine with that. I'm totally at peace with that. I'm not telling you the story because I, I stay up late at night worrying about the fact that I never inherited this land. But I thought of this example because it conveys the idea that there is generational ramification for the actions and the behaviors of those that are heads of households like in this circumstance. Uh, the best, of course, and the prime example of this is the story of Adam at the beginning of human history. Now, Adam, because of his unique role as the very first human being, um, his story has additional ramifications that doesn't apply to Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. But at the very least, what we see is Adam made a decision at the beginning of human history did it have long-range ramifications for all that followed in his family line after him? Absolutely did. And so those ramifications we call consequences. There are, for every decision, every behavior, there are good consequences attached to the righteous decisions and righteous behaviors, and there are bad consequences that the Lord himself attaches to bad decisions and bad behaviors. And all of it is designed to train us and to teach us more of his ways and uh, to, to encourage us and to kind of turn us toward the right ways of the Lord. So to long answer to this one uh, question, essentially it can be one of these two principles. The visiting of the circumstances of the father onto the successive generations, even to the third and fourth generation can be an expression of God's commitment to consistent judgment for each generation, or it can be a lesson in generational consequence so that people can understand how important those uh, decisions and behaviors are. All right, let's head over now for the second question to the book of Joshua. And we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. And I had mentioned that this question is related to the first one. There's kind of an overlap and I think you'll see that pretty readily. This is from a famous story in the Exodus account. So now the children of Israel have finished the 40-year journey through the wilderness. All of that generation has died off, with two exceptions again, Joshua and Caleb. And the Lord has called Joshua to replace Moses, who has also died in the wilderness, and he's to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. So they've crossed now the River Jordan, they're in the outskirts of the Promised Land, and what is beginning in this chapter is the first conquest of the first portion of the Promised Land, and this has to do with um, both Jericho, the, the um, conquest of Jericho and Ai. So in the previous chapter, we have the story of Jericho. Now in this chapter, we have the second town that is being attacked by Israel, and that is the town of Ai. And in this circumstance, the Lord, before they had started the battles, 
had made exceptionally clear he had one standard that he wanted every one of the children of Israel to pay extra careful attention to not violate. And that was there were going to be items of value that would be what would normally be considered to be spoils of war. And the Lord said, in the case of these two areas of battle, that the spoils of war were to be devoted to destruction and they were not to be carried away by the children of Israel to keep for their own enrichment. So we get into the battle and what's happened in Ai, of course with Jericho, the children of Israel had a glorious victory. Now in Ai, they're expecting a glorious victory, but as the battle unfolds, they have an initial defeat and they're confused and they're perplexed because the Lord had led them and said that he was going to lead them in glorious victory after glorious victory. But now they've experienced a defeat and they want to know why they've lost. So they go back and they seek the Lord and we're going to pick up with um, the explanation of why they have been defeated. And what's, what's the backstory is that one man of the um, warriors of Israel, a man by the name of Achan, had participated in the battle and as he was defeating certain individuals in the battle he noticed certain items of value that the Lord had forbidden for him to take and enrich himself with and he had hidden them and he had intended to secretly keep them knowing full well in his heart that he was violating the Lord's standards so let's read the story in chapter 7 verse 19 And this is now after the Lord uses a process. He gives instructions to Joshua and he uses a process to identify, to, to help Joshua to discern exactly who has violated the standard of the Lord. And now Joshua knows it is Achan. And so now Joshua is speaking to Achan. Verse 19, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? His action had been responsible for the death of over 30 of the Israelites in the initial battle. Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. This is a proclamation as a prophet of God of the Lord's judgment upon him. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. 
So first, there's an emphasis in verse 25 on the death, the execution of Achan. But then there's an inclusion of them at the end of the verse. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day, kind of like a memorial to his judgment so that successive generations could look and learn uh, the Lord's ways from what had happened to him. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which simply means the Valley of Trouble. All right, so the question is this that the person was asking. In Joshua 7, 19-25, Achan and all his family are put to death for Achan's sins. But Jeremiah 31, verse 30, says that instead everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. Why in the first verse, or the first passage, were Achan's family members killed for his sins? All right, so I hope you see the overlap, which is, um, are, are we dealing here with a circumstance where Achan has committed a horrible violation of God's standards, so much so that he's personally responsible for the death of over 30 righteous Israelites in the battle. And clearly, according to the Lord's standards, he deserves a death penalty in this circumstance, and Israel does carry out that death penalty. But are we dealing with the circumstance here that Achan was the one who was committing the sin, and his children, the rest of his family, are what we would call innocent bystanders, but they kind of get swept up in the circumstance. How many of you have ever seen on TV, I hope you've never personally experienced it, uh, but how many of you have ever seen on TV a mob circumstance? A mob situation. And I don't, mean a, I don't mean a flash mob, like doing some fun activity together at the mall. I'm talking about a, a violent, yeah. angry mob, or what we would call a riot, where there is a large group of people and they, they're all uh, stirred up and, and upset and angry in the same way, and they have violent intentions and they just start grabbing people and they start doing harm to people uh, sometimes people get caught up in those circumstances and become victims of the mob, the mob violence even if they themselves have not done anything to harm anyone in the mob so is that what we're dealing with here it's kind of a mob circumstance where now israel is incensed against achan and they 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 rush to to execute judgment on Achan and then his innocent bystander children are just kind of caught up in the circumstance and they're executed along with their dad even though they were completely innocent. And the answer is no, that's not at all what's happening here. Um, This is a spiritually dramatic moment in the promised land conquest. What's happening is the Lord is using Israel to judge the nations that are inhabiting the land. There were seven Canaanite nations. Each one of those Canaanite nations was more evil than the other. There were horrific, terrible things that these Canaanite nations had been doing and had been doing for generations. Uh, One example being that uh, they would, for their own false religious worship of the idols that they were uh, committed to, they would take their own children and literally burn them alive as, a, um, as an expression of worship to their God. 
And um, so the Lord had basically said enough is enough. And he was now bringing the children of Israel in as his agents of judgment against these seven Canaanite nations. Yes, the Lord had his own purpose to establish Israel there in the promised land, but he also had a parallel purpose to judge and to cleanse that land of this horrific and wicked uh, in, uh, set of seven nations. And in that, uh, what he was doing was he was using one nation as a tool to judge another nation, Israel in this case, judging the seven Canaanite nations. Whenever the Lord uses one person to judge another or one nation to judge another, he requires a high standard of faithful adherence to his ways of the ones that he's using to uh, enact judgment upon the others. And if that judging nation is not adhering to the, God, to the ways of the Lord, or that judging person is not adhering to the ways of the Lord, the Lord will, after the judgment on the first, hold them accountable and make them responsible to experience a similar kind of judgment him, themselves. So what the Lord is doing here is he is, as he's bringing the children of Israel into the promised land, this is the very beginning of the conquest, the very first two cities that were attacked by Israel. And in the first one, Jericho, which was an amazing and miraculous victory. You know the story. A, a gigantic wall around the entire city of Jericho could not be penetrated. The Lord has them walk around the city seven days in a row. And on the seventh day, the Lord miraculously flattens the wall surrounding the city of Jericho. And they overrun the city and they conquer it according to the Lord's purposes. In that circumstance, Israel was walking faithfully before the Lord. Every single Israelite that participated in that battle was walking faithfully before the Lord. But between there and Ai, this one individual, Achan, crossed the line. And he was now violating with clear and certain knowledge the standard that the Lord had set of don't take any of the gold, don't take any of the silver, don't take anything of value from these people. All of it's being dedicated to destruction. There's there's symbolic reason for that dedication or that devotion to destruction that the Lord had required. So can we say with certainty that the Lord is not judging innocent bystanders in the judgment that the children of Achan experienced? Let's look back at the story and look at one verse of the passage that I read. We're in chapter 7 of Joshua. And I'm reading from verse 21. This is, this is Achan's admission of his sin. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, what does that mean? They are hidden in the earth inside my tent. What is he describing? I went inside my tent and I dug a hole in the earth under my, the covering, you know, the covering was covering my sin. I dug a hole in the middle of my tent and I put in, and this is not a small amount, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels and at least one special garment from Shinar that had apparently some special value. He hid them in the tent. 
What does that indicate and imply? That the entire family knew what he was doing. It wasn't like what Achan did was, okay, everybody get out of the tent. I got some, I got some, some private stuff to do. And he shoes the entire family out of the tent and then, you know, in, in, in somehow he, he carried all of this loot somehow under his cloak so that nobody saw what he was doing. And then he individually dug a hole in the tent and hid all of this stuff in the tent, covered it up, then went outside and said, okay, everybody can come back inside the tent and had somehow uh, arranged the earth in the tent in such a way that no, nobody in the family suspected anything. That's not the scenario of what's being uh, implied and indicated by his admission. The scenario is that Achan was the prime mover in the sin, but he came into his tent where his, and when, you understand tents that the Israelites lived in were not like our general camping tents that when we go out for a, a weekend or a week camping, they're not some kind of small little structure. These were, these were large and substantial tents where entire families were living in these tents and they were living in them. They had been living in these tents for the last 40 years. So these were, these were significant family structures. He went into this tent and with his family present there and observing what he was doing, he suddenly had 50 shekels of silver, a giant bar of gold, and this amazing garment from Shinar. And he dug a hole, which, you know, if, if everything's above board, why are you digging a hole in the ground to put this stuff in? And, you know, if it's a really nice piece of clothing, why are you going to be covering it with dirt anyway? Uh, unless there is some super important reason to hide it. So the clear indicator here is, in this key detail, is that uh, the family decided to go along with the sin of Achan. Uh, we don't know the ages of his sons and daughters, but apparently they were old enough to understand what was going on. And in their decision to not approach Joshua, and this would have been a valid reason and motivation to do so. They, in this circumstance, being aware of their father's sin and the significance of his sin, that it's a death penalty level sin. It would be equivalent to if one of you, and this will never happen, Lord, Lord willing and thankfully, but if one of you were to secretly commit a murder, but it wasn't secret to your own family members, and you're now enlisting them to help you cover up your murder. You deserve to die for that sin. But now that you've involved your family in the cover-up, what do we call that in our legal system? We call that an accomplice to the murder. You haven't necessarily committed the murder yourself, but you, have, you bear your own responsibility because you are helping to hide that sin from those eyes that should be holding you accountable and responsible for it. So those children should have approached Joshua and said, um, our father Achan has hidden uh, the, the dedicated and devoted items in our tent. He's dug a hole. They're there in the tent. Uh, come and check it out. Uh, we're heartbroken, but it must come to the light because... Uh, 30 men, some 30 odd men in Israel have lost their lives because of the, the sinful decision of our father. 
And they did not do that. They kept silent. Hope, you know, why in the world would they keep silent? Maybe they don't want to lose their father to the execution that he deserves. Maybe they think they're going to gain some of the benefit from the 50 shekels of silver and the, or the 200 shekels of silver and the 50 shekel uh, weight of gold. Uh, maybe they, they you know, are, are kind of uh, anticipating the things that they're going to, in the promised land be able to enjoy because of uh, the new wealth that's entered the family. But one way or the other, uh, when they are executed, we can be absolutely certain of this. They were not innocent bystanders. They were buying in not to the righteous commitment to preserve the integrity of the people of Israel and to adhere to the standards of the Lord, but they were buying into the sins of their father. Now, we won't have time to look at it, but if you are interested, there's a parallel passage to this, a different story, a different account, but the same principle found in Numbers chapter 16, which is the story of the rebellion of Korah. When... um, Korah led a rebellion against Moses and against the Lord, and he um, organized this rebellion that, that, re- that really split the camp of Israel. And when the Lord finally uh, addressed him and dealt with him through Moses, um, he did so in a, a miraculous way, a miraculous judgment of the Lord. Uh, do you remember what happened to Korah? Um, the, the, literally the earth split open underneath his feet and he was swallowed up and not only him but his entire family and again in that circumstance the family is not viewed as innocent bystanders but as participants in his rebellion willing and conscientious uh, participants in his rebellion and therefore they're held accountable to the same righteous standard um, as their father just like Achan's children were held accountable as well All right, we're going to stop there. We're at the end of our time. I'll save the third question for next week as we're going to try to do one more open study before we start our new uh, theme of studies. So, uh, Lord willing, I will see you back here next Thursday night. And if you have another question, uh, feel free to get it to me. You can email it to me between now and then.